Welcome to the Small Business Edge Podcast with Brian Moran, sponsored by Pitney Bowes. Now, here's your host, Brian Moran. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Small Business Edge Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Moran. Today, I want to welcome Carol Roth to our show. Carol is a former investment banker, current entrepreneur, and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Entrepreneur Equation, which I loved. Uh, And she has a new book coming out titled The War on Small Business, which we plan to discuss quite a bit on today's show. With that, I want to welcome to the Small Business Edge podcast, Carol Roth. Brian, it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, thanks for all you do for small business. Obviously, it's what what this is all about. So appreciate your uh, your efforts here. Sure. Well, I love I love talking to you. I always learn something when I talk to you. I love watching you on television and reading the stuff that you write because you don't pull punches and everything you do, I feel like supports small business owners and entrepreneurs and people who are who truly are that we call them the backbone of America. But really, they're the plow horse of America. Right. No, no respect. All work. Foundation of America as it is today. I mean, the stats, people, I think, sometimes don't get their heads wrapped around the statistics, which I know you know well, but 99.9% of all business entities in this country are small business. Before COVID, we had around 30.2 million small businesses. Um, There's like 10 to 15,000 big businesses. And I think because they get all the press and the attention that people, literally, I've had people have asked them, like, how many big businesses do you think they are? They think there are millions of them. They're not. There's like a handful. It's all the other small business. And before COVID, they accounted for about half the workforce and half the GDP. So this is like not something where we're just like making up these nice little names. Like this is actual foundation. And as you said, the, the plow horse of America and yeah. by the way, the world as well, not just America. So so when we call it the Fortune 500, they're talking about 500 companies. Right. <laughs> right. Just so, you know, and, and yeah. And to your point, you know, drive around local neighborhoods and see which businesses are no longer in business because of COVID. And that's when you really start to feel the effect of of what it means not to have small businesses around, you know, your favorite pizzeria. Mine went out of business during the pandemic and I'm still struggling with that. I'm sorry. Do you know how long they had been in business for? Oh, at least 20 years, at least 20 years, because I have been going to them for that long. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and it, and it was, it's heartbreaking. And it, it's heartbreaking because not only is that not the exception to the rule, that's widespread, but it didn't happen because of anything they did in their business. You know, this is not creative destruction. This is not capitalism. This is not natural course of life. They were literally murdered by government mandate. And that's the part of this that is so frustrating. And I think people who don't um, spend enough time understanding the small business landscape sometimes get wrong. Yes. And that's that's what I want to get into today. So your book, The War on Small Business, um, 13 chapters in this book. And I, I am convinced that and, and I'm reading it right now. I'm about three quarters of the way through it. I'm convinced that each chapter could be its own podcast. I mean, there's so much that you tackle in here. So let me let me get to the first question. So your book, your new book, which comes out June 29th, 
June 29th. It's available for pre-order everywhere now. And because again, we're supporting small business. If you're in the US and you want to pre-order it, I keep encouraging people go to bookshop.org. They will fulfill this. And by the way, your other books from local small business booksellers, because we uh, can't have that. this discussion about supporting small businesses and then just run and, and buy it from the biggest retailer you can find. Again, I'm a capitalist. So if you want to, I'm not going to stop you from doing that, but just being more conscious about how we as individuals support small business, um, not just for my book, but for any book that you have out there, check out bookshop.org. Bookshop.org. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to make sure I send that out through social media. We're going to add that to the resource page, have people look at it. Definitely. Is that only through period or it's whenever? Oh, every, everything. So that's okay. a really cool um, you know, effort where they're trying to help. And you can see every time you buy a book, you know, this is how much you've raised for a small business bookseller. They have a running total on the top. And people are like, well, you know, it's so convenient to do it through, you know, wherever.com. Right, um, right. But, uh, but it's just as convenient. It's still a website. It's not like I'm telling you, you have to like go somewhere. It's still the same thing. So maybe it's not one click, maybe it's three clicks. But again, it's right. that conscious effort to help the small businesses of this country. Right. One, one of my favorite things to do in the world is to go into a local independent bookstore. We have one near me called Bookends in Ridgewood, New Jersey, which is world-class good. Um, a, a friend of mine, a woman I used to do business with, opened up a, a local bookshop right before the pandemic in the Lower East Side in New York City. And I need to reach out to her. I'm going to right after this, this podcast to find out how she's doing and what I can do to support her. Well, tell them, tell them about the book. I'm going to. We're, we're trying to support them. So Excellent. Well, we appreciate that. All right. So here's my first question. Okay. <laughs> the war on small business. Yes. How government used the pandemic to crush the backbone of America. <laughs> so this is the first thing that popped into my mind. Was this a bipartisan, bipartisan effort on the government's part? It, it, yeah, it's a nonpartisan effort. And that's the, the, the tone of the book. People keep saying like, oh, is this all right or is this all left? And it said, so no, this is completely nonpartisan because it's all about a spectrum of if you think about capitalism to what I'll call central planning, capitalism being freedom and choice and decentralization, central planning being, you know, few people make decisions, force, control, coercion. Uh, so who benefits, you know, when you're moving away from decentralization to centralization? But I hate to tell you, spoiler alert here, boys and girls, it's everybody. It's, it's all the politicians. And so, you know, this, this is not meant to call out a party or a person, this is about principles and this is about systemic issues and they're systemic issues. So it doesn't matter who you have sitting in charge, maybe it's a little bit better, a little bit worse, but it doesn't change the full systemic issues that says that, you know, a big bank is too big to fail, even though they did something naughty that like ended up hurting all of the economy and all of our lives. But a small business who was shut down by government mandate was too small to matter or too hard to control. I don't really care which you think it is. The outcome is the same, whether you think it's incompetence, you know, they just don't care or that it was intentional. Any of those any of those lead to the same outcome, which is a systemic issue. So this is not not a partisan issue, as I always say. It's about the Green Party, a.k.a. the Economic Party, which we should all be caring about. <laughs> yes. Yes. No, you're, I, 
You know what? I've always felt that way. And, and, and in terms of, I think you, and that's why you and I are so aligned with a lot of our thinking is that we promote and protect and care about small business owners first and foremost. I mean, that is it. There's not, there's not a political party that owns small business. Um, and, and let's just take it one step further. It's about the individual rights and economic freedom. I mean, the, the smallest majority right. of this country is the individual. So, yeah, it's about those principles and talking about the principles and not parties. And if you go into this with partisan like lens, you're going to be mad because people in both parties are getting thrown under the bus as as they well deserved. And so if you have that lens, you're going to be mad because I said something mean about this person. And if you come on the other side, you're going to be mad because something mean about this person. Both people deserved it. Both sides deserved it. So let's just let's just call. It yeah. Parties. Yeah. So what is why does government hate small business so much? So it goes back to the concept of, you know, why the, the country was originally structured for the government's role to be to protect individual rights and to not be making decisions. I mean, we're we're the only country in the world that has been structured that way, that set up, that says, you know, here are your rights as an individual, and the government is set up, you know, only to protect those. Um, and so, you know, we have this, this unique position in the world, and it's why we've been so successful. But over time, we have let it creep in the opposite direction. And so instead of, you know, us as individuals having personal responsibility and, you know, taking control of our destinies and whatnot, uh, the government keeps offering like, you know, oh, I'm going to give you a little bit of this. I'm going to give you a little bit of this. Yeah. And the constituents who want that will take it not you know, giving up all of the damage that it's causing and nobody wants to give up their little piece. So they have gotten more and more power. So really what's happened here, and as I kind of set it out, is that when you have 30.2 million independent, free thinking small business owners, they're not going to do anything for you politically. They don't have enough money to change your political campaign. It's too hard to build a coalition amongst them, which is, by the way, a great thing. This is a good thing. We don't we don't want that. We don't yeah. want a duopoly. We want the competition. Competition is what serves everybody's uh, economic purpose and, and general purpose well. And uh, and so basically, they it's easier, it's more convenient for them to deal with those you know couple thousand big businesses than it is to deal with a bunch of small businesses. So you know that becomes it's not that they you know have utter disdain for them; they just don't care. It doesn't serve their purpose in terms of centralizing power. And it's the same thing with you know wealthy individuals and kind of the non-connected individuals you know they, they always say they're for the little guy but if you look at what their actions have been over long periods of time it's impossible to draw that conclusion right and and so i want to go back a little bit in history to kind of get a sense of where we think that we saw a lot of this coming from i mean if i go back to the early 1900s you, you know you mentioned cronyism too uh, yes. quite a bit in your book and, you know, when you think about the, the Carnegie's and the Vanderbilt's and the Gettys and the Rockefeller's, you know, OK, you. you get you get the trains, you get publishing, you, you get oil. Right. And, and that's how they kind of divvied up the country. Um, and then and then and they, um, use, and they use, by the way, the government to protect their court cartels and to protect their monopolies. So right. It was the opposite. They they tried to, to actually I think I'm not sure if I relayed the story in the book or if I just quoted the source that has relayed the story. If you, if you read the book, 
Um, the case against the Fed by Dr. Murray Rothbard, which I, I quote extensively in the book, you know, they talk about the, these railroad cartels that they tried to, to form them. But what happens like happens in the free market is somebody goes almost to my benefit to break the cartel and to get more business for myself. So they couldn't enforce the cartel without the government's help. So they went to their politicians that will support you. And it's, you know, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. And that's what happens. So, you know, anytime anyone talks about like monopolies or antitrust or, you know, all this wealth transfer that we've seen to these big companies, it's always coming from the government because they're the ones that have the power. If they got out of the way, it would be almost impossible. I can't, can barely think of a monopoly that wasn't granted by the government. Right, right. That they made it easier for them to do this incredible land grab without any kind of competition. And then I'll tell you the same thing happened. I recount this um, in the book in chapter five, uh, when we talk about the Federal Reserve, but that's exactly right. what happened with the Federal Reserve. So, that, so the, the seeds of this foundationally have been planted. Um, and we even talked about things like the minimum wage that, that are hot topics now were, was, like, was brought in to exclude people from the workforce and people, meaning immigrants, minorities, women, people who weren't in the sort of protected class. So all these things that we think of as, you know, quote unquote, progressive, were always meant to exclude people and protect power and whatnot. Um, and then, you know, so we've seen it for over long periods of time, but it really has accelerated in right. like the last two decades. <clears throat> well, it, you know, let's fast forward. I'm probably going to jump around here a little bit, but one of the biggest issues that I had with that government package that they put out was the $300 weekly stimulus, uh, you know, to keep people unemployed. And yeah, extended unemployment. Benefit. Extended unemployment with the three hundred dollar a week kicker, so that they went directly against all businesses. But it really hurt small businesses trying to hire back their hourly workers, and they're saying, "Well, I'm making more being unemployed than you pay me to be employed, so you need to raise my my wages." And of course, the government is kind of keeping its thumb on small business, saying. You know, well, why don't you just pay them more and then we can get rid of our weekly stimulus package. Right. And so you can bring them back. What's interesting about that. And this is why I want to get into a little bit about, you know, federal government versus state government, because 21 state governors said enough is enough. We're going to refuse government, the federal government support of the extended unemployment $300 week kicker because we need our people to get back to work. So my question to you is this is what role do state governments play in terms of being the intermediaries between the federal government and small business? Yeah, so let me answer that question second and first just address the, the beginning part because yes, that thing, that whole part was, was tragic and, and we should understand the implications of it. But the reality is, if you wanted to make sure people were compensated, you could have paid them to stay on the payrolls of the small business. And this right. is what, what I had advocated for March of 2020. I saw the writing on the wall like before any of this unfolded. And I said, OK, you really want to do this. You could, they, by the way, they could have spent a trillion, maybe a trillion and a half dollars and got bought themselves two to three months easily, kept everyone on the payroll, kept everyone paying taxes, kept those jobs in place while they figured out a mitigation strategy. Right. So do, yeah, do you want to interject here? Before well, we I just want to say, what does PPP stand for? Right. <laughs> payroll 
protection program, right? It was designed. No, well, <laughs> no, it was it was called that. Right, kind of right. like anything else out of government. It's the fluffy puppy bill, but it kills cats. You know, but yeah, but, like, but it was it was it was designed. They said, okay, you know, and they threw around the percentages, but sixty percent, seventy percent. If you want this to be forgiven, sixty to seventy percent has to go to your employees. And then they said, okay, mortgage and utilities and whatever. I mean, they were just making stuff up, like uh, to, to decide, <laughs> you know, what what it, it could go towards. But, but, yeah, but, but the, the point, the larger point is, is that this isn't a dig at the workers or trying to screw the workers. This could have been structured if they actually, if their intention was to actually support small businesses and to. Uh, ensure that small people who work there have jobs, they would have structured it entirely differently. And as I said, I put an op-ed out on a major national news site about this. So it's not like these these ideas weren't out there. And certainly I was not the only person talking about them. So so yes, so that, that becomes a, a whole thing, which again, you can walk down and we talk about in the book, sort of the, this like, you know, is this meant to be a de facto increase in the minimum wage? Is this meant to get people used to government right. handouts as a trial run for UBI? There's all those things. But let's talk about the states. So that's a huge part of the issue here, because if you think about the mechanism and just how completely insane it is, and I, I talk specifically about the numbers in the book. You know, it used to be that the whole point of the federal government was just to like, you know, the, the states would come in and make sure that, you know, the states weren't doing anything nefarious for individual rights. And it like it wasn't a big deal. Mm-hmm. They completely let their power be transferred to, to the federal government to the point where we all pay money to the federal government with collectively around three quarters of a trillion and growing before covid and they play reindeer games and decide how much they're going to give back to each right, state. Right, right, right. Like, like, why? Why do you need a middleman to do that? Why don't we just give the money to the state where we can have the direct influence, where we have the uh, transparency to know where it's being spent? Like, why do we need this middleman? But they have given up this level of control. So anything that now happens in the state becomes this like free for all. And now you and I have to care about like, you know, who the senator from Georgia is. Like, I don't care who the senator from Georgia, I mean, no offense, if you live in Georgia, like you should care, but I shouldn't have to care because that's not how this whole thing was set up. And if we had people who were challenging this usurping of rights at the the federal level from the states all along, that we would be in this situation. And that's where I think people don't understand when they start talking about, oh, well, we need this, the federal government to to do this and do this. Like, no, we don't. Like they're already at the federal, state and local levels before COVID, they were spending $8.1 trillion a year. That's four times the GDP of Canada, right? Yeah. yeah, This is like an insane amount of money. And what happens if you follow economics at all is that you have something that's called diseconomies of scale, Mm -hmm. where something gets so big that it actually becomes less efficient. And so between the amount they're spending, the amount of things they're in charge of, the number of laws, like all these kinds of things, they're, they're literally not doing anything well. And it would be great for them to just focus on those couple of things that they're supposed to be doing and do those well and let the rest of us handle them. I mean, I didn't talk about this in the book, but this is a perfect example is something like social security. Like even if you feel like it, it needs to be mandated because people can't be responsible to take care of themselves, Okay, then the government 
says, puts a law in place and says, fine, you have to have it come out of your paycheck, but you hold it, you own it. And it goes into your own account and you can put that in the stock market instead of getting an IOU from the government, which by the way, the government doesn't make any money. So it's actually, you're like, it's an IOU from the, uh, the taxpayers. Right. Right. So like it's, you could, we we could own that. It's called provident funds. Um, different countries do this. Some of them, the government manage, some of them, they let you manage independently, but like, that would build wealth for like every American, but they don't want to do that. They want to have that control. They want you to give it to them. They want to have that extra pot to spend. If they really cared about us individually, you'd own your retirement, your social security money that you're paying into. It would be yours. You could pass it down to your kids. Like there's just no doubt about it. So that multiplied by like a million other examples. Right, right. All examples of the way that they control our lives. Right. I, I and, think, and it's yeah. intentional. They want to do it because that's how they get their power. That That's like this is a, a power trip thing and this cements their power. And because people don't have that economic literacy, it's like a no good deed put, goes unpunished situation. Most people, if you ask our average American, they have good intentions. They, they want yeah, we need a social safety net. OK, we all agree on that. But the way that it's being affected and having the government in charge of it is actually to our detriment. And it's that piece of the equation that I'm trying to. And again, I didn't talk about Social Security because this is you know, more about small business. Right. Um, but, but I did in one version of the book. I wrote like three and a half different versions of that, like <laughs> 160,000 words. But so I did all the you know, all the, the relevant research. But, you know, those are the kinds of things that we don't realize how that has an economic impact. And you think you're helping but you're not. So as the pandemic started to unfold and we saw all of the different ways that um, we were pivoting as, as an economy and the government and business, was it then that you got the idea to write this book? Like, did this book start out? I am, I'm envisioning you like it's starting out as a journal, like, OK, something's happening here and I need to start taking notes because I'm going to want to remember this. Was it something that you chronicled over the last and wrote as as it unfolded? It's a great question. So as I mentioned, um, early in March, I kind of put out this op-ed and I was very early on some of these hidden economic implications. And I was actually approached by HarperCollins and HarperCollins came to me and said, we need somebody who's actually smart and knowledgeable to write something economic about what is going to be a historic economic situation. Wow. Okay. Would you be interested? And I said, I foolishly said, why, yes, yes, I would. And just like you said, we didn't know what was going to happen, right? We didn't, yeah. it was unfolding. So it literally like for at this point, like a year now um, had been deep in, and that's why I wrote th- like kind of three and a half different books during this. Uh, because, you know, as the time unfolded and the actions unfolded, things shifted um, and there were different things that came out. But I always had small business, you know, up, and part of it's just you know, because of my background as a, as a key issue. But like when we started kind of following the trajectory and, and mm. like, what, you know, back in in February and March, like it was like the stock market was in free fall. Oh, yeah. So you kind of think it's everyone. But then you realize, oh, well, the Fed's coming in here and the first actions that were taken were to prop up the stock market. And then you saw the bills that were crafted and how much you know that went to the, the wealthiest. And so at, by the end of the year, you had had a transfer of three point four trillion dollars to seven tech companies 
you had a record year for initial public offerings, a record year for something called SPACs, which are special purpose acquisition companies, which are like the second step step cousin to IPOs, which we can go into if you want to. But, um, but the, you know, we had that simultaneous to hundreds of thousands of small business uh, businesses closed forever, mm-hmm. millions more hanging out by a thread. And you're going, well, like, how could this be? How could this be? And so that's when we really honed in on that this this is the the one you know, story that we want to tell. But what I'll tell you is that as I went through the research, um, and as I said, Herculean task, I mean, in the book, as it stands, there's almost 500 sources from the broader thing of research, it was probably, you know, well over a thousand. So this is, this is what happened um, is, is, you know, as I dug into these themes and these topics, it was clear that this was just part of a larger scenario that had been going on for a long time. And so I wanted to tell stories like the story of the Fed and what's been happening, not only since its inception, but particularly over the last, you know, call it 12 or 13 years. Yeah, I needed to tell the story about China and how we have exported capitalism to them while kind of holding up a mirror and starting to move more in their direction. Um, and I wanted to have some discussions about what capitalism is and isn't and how it's conflated with cronyism, because all of these things are this, is part of this macro discussion of decentralization versus centralized power, which really, at the end of the day, is what this book is about. So re- reading all of this and listening to you, are term limits like kryptonite to the government? Or is it is it that it's a machine and it doesn't matter who gets in there? This is you know, there's going to be like a uh, like a, a binder that's left on a desk. Read this, uh, you know, operating manual. So, as I said, it becomes more of a, an issue of systemic issues um, versus partisan issues. I do think we have a big issue. If, you, if you're somebody who doesn't like monopolies or duopolies, if you believe in, in antitrust, uh, the biggest duopoly that we have in this country is the Democrat and Republican Party. Mm-hmm. And part of the research that didn't make it into the book um, was about everything from the debates on out, how that basically is, is structured so that third parties and other kind of, you know, new party challengers can't come in. So we have this sort of illusion of choice but like, I mean, does it really matter who it is? It, it's it's really these systemic issues that, you know, you could have one person, as I said, who's slightly better or one person who's slightly worse. But that's right. not the problem. The problem is that we need, you know, challenges. We need, uh, we, I do talk about in the book, um, at the state level over some kind of a, they, they looked at a 50 year period that didn't even include like the last 20 years. There were over a million laws <laughs> put in place at the state level something like 20,000 at the federal level and then like another 15,000 regulations just in that period of time in a country that's supposed to be free that has a constitution that kind of lays out our rights. So we have this illusion that we have all of this freedom and we have all of this choice and we don't. And from all of those laws, like maybe like 100 or like 200 of them have ever been challenged. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole structural issue um, you know, between the states and the federal at the federal level. And so 
yeah, I mean, I guess at some point you need the right people to be willing to tear it down, but it really needs to come from us. You know, I said the bit, the, the biggest trick that the, the government, and again, this is not partisan, but the, you know, both parties, we spend so much time going like, well, you need to pay more taxes. Well, you need to do more of this and pointing fingers at each other. Right. But there's like a lot of us, if we all like came together and said enough's enough, you can't do this anymore, it would stop. But everybody has to be willing to give up that little like tiny crumb that they're giving you where they're screwing everything else up. And like just a a perfect example is government inflation. I mean, they have inflated everything from the housing market to the cost of small business to the cost of education, primary, secondary and now college education because they nationalized most of the, the college lending business. And so if you think about just something like the cost of a house, the National Association of Home Builders came out with a study in May, 94,000 additional dollars is going into the average price of a house in this country because of government regulation. So they are, and that doesn't even include your property taxes, which are right. like now going, continuing to go through the roof and creating all these issues. So if we had smaller government, if you're willing to give up your like thousand bucks here and your 500 bucks here, whatever it is, like you'd save $94,000 on your house. And you you have to, you have to be willing to do that, but it's just hard to make change because then the media goes, Oh, well you hate old people or you hate social security. It's like, no, I'm trying to, trying to make it, you know, so that everybody is successful and the government's not sucking up all of our resources. And by the way, they're not an efficient steward of those resources. So if we have them, they go back and they create growth. If they have them, they do not. Well, yeah, I mean, you look at the numbers of, uh, of, of cycles in the wheel, right? The money wheel in the economy. How many times does that money get, you know, turned over? Right. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, this begs a question. Somebody who actually went to journalism school. Uh, where is the media in all of this? You know, the, the, are the, is the fourth estate a willing partner to what the government is doing? OK, so I have uh, for those of you who don't know me well, I have been media adjacent for 12 years. So I have been a pundit on national television pretty much on a weekly basis uh, for a dozen years now. Wasn't wasn't intentional, but yet here I am. Yeah. Um, And I think for the most part, they are. I think it starts in the education system where education has turned to activism and particularly in journalism school. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And now journalists want to be pundits, which is fine if you want to be a pundit, if you want to give your opinions on things. That's great. Just be a pundit. But now journalists whose job is to hold the government accountable sees themselves as these partisan activists or pundits or whatnot, and they're not doing their jobs. Not to say that there aren't great journalists out there. Um, they tend to not be in the political realm. Like some of the greatest journalists I've seen, you know, the, the guys behind the billion dollar whale story at the Wall Street Journal. I mean, they're, yeah. they're all kinds of tremendous. The, the women who did the Jeffrey Epstein reporting uh, down in Miami, lots of tremendous journalists. But in the political journalism realm, by and large, they're not doing their jobs and they're not creating accountability. And because the government, you know, maybe in cahoots with with the media has created this thing where they know that this, um, you know, kind of religious status or teams to sports status for politics has created a business for them. They're not incentivized to like tell, you know, tell something straightforward. They, they need to create that 
that spin on it so that we have things that we can fight with each other about, again, completely counterproductive. So there is that weird cycle um, that's going on. And, you know, it goes back to your own responsibility as well. I mean, how many times do people click on and share negative articles versus positive articles? How many people, right. times do people, like if you are jumping down somebody's throat on Twitter, you're going to get thousands of likes. And if you like share an uplifting story, like five people. Will right, right. That, well, what, it, what, kind of, what kind of behavior does that affect? Yeah. That's our fault. You know, I just had a great experience in a store. I'm going to tell all my friends. Right. I just had a horrible experience in a store. I'm going to tell everybody I know and everybody I don't know because I'm, I'm mad and I'm not going to take it anymore. Um. I, but, you know, it, it's interesting because you look at social media as a kind of like that independent arm where, you know, it's all of a sudden everybody's a cit citizen journalist and, you know, and and the fake news and, and the rumors and, you know, the bots, all of that stuff that, that has just kind of spun the truth out of control. And right. well, and then now you've got, I mean, so they're not even independent anymore. Now you've got the social media platforms deciding that they're going to be the arbiters of truth. And right. This is and be that was problem. my point. This is a big problem during COVID because there was a lot of, of information that was true information that because they didn't like the orange man in the White House, that they decided that they were going to spin everything negatively and they suppressed information that now we have found out, you know, a year plus later was true. But they said, no, this is disputed information. And it's like, you, right. you have no authority. You don't know that this is disputed. I mean, people were literally kicked off the platforms, deplatforms, their, their freedom of speech, not constitutional freedom of speech, but just principle of freedom of speech, stifled because these, these platforms had become activists. And again, I don't know if it was intentional or stupidity or whatever it is, but that's the whole point of having a discourse so that we can get all these ideas out there and suss out what's right. Um, but that, that entire process has also just become pastured up. Well, and, and you have to follow the money. You know, whenever something like that happens, you follow the money and you say, well, who's behind the green it? party? This is what we're all about. Right. Follow the right, money. Right. Economic freedom. Get money for ourselves. Get yeah, everybody it's, <laughs> it's, you know, there's there's a lot to be said about people who are courageous enough to find. You know, I don't I don't I don't believe in the truth, per se, like the uh, what what I remember I had. I had uh, an ethics uh, professor at, at college. He was. Lyndon Johnson's press secretary, George Reedy, and he was phenomenal. And he said, you know, number one, you leave your ego at the door when you write when you're writing a, a story. And number two, you're not looking for the truth. You're looking for accuracy. Mm. Like what was like that? You yeah. want to be as accurate uh, in your details as you possibly can. But when you start getting caught up in the truth, it's opinions and it's lies and it's perception. And it really, it really may, you know, so it's the who, what, when, where, and how, and leave out the why. I think that's phenomenal. Yeah. It, it was, it was, it was such a great lesson that I learned there. And you realize that, that in, in today, journalism today, uh, you know, I mean, I, I remember reading about you know, Jimmy Breslin, uh, uh, Pete Hamill, Mike Royko from Chicago. Yeah. Right. I mean, you, you think the, the Tim Russert, who I who I uh, loved, 
But these were people, these were people who looked for accuracy and they didn't, you didn't necessarily know what political party they were affiliated with. And they grilled people equally. Like if you did wrong, they called you out and they, and they, you know, they dug for information. It was, wasn't always about the speed of information. Well, and I'm, I'm hoping that's what the book does, because as I said, I tried to recount information and I also took a stand that I did. There's certain things I didn't need to convince you of because it didn't matter. Like there's, there are people who felt like we should have had full lockdowns and there are people who felt like we should have had full liberties. And I don't need to convince you, which is the right thing because neither of them happened. We obviously know the full liberties didn't happen. What a lot of people don't realize is that nowhere near full lockdowns happen. If you were a big company, if you were connected, if you had clout, you were never locked down. If you were an essential business. Right. Exactly. You were essential. And that money was transferred from the non-essential to the central, from small to big. And so we weren't all in it together. And, And I have a thesis that if we had literally shut everyone down, like if, if Amazon's warehouse couldn't operate, if your grocery store was really close, if all these things were closed, this one, the lockdowns would not have lasted two or three weeks. People would have been up in arms and they would have had right. a completely different spin. But because it didn't affect their lives, it was very right. easy to kind of virtue signal and say, oh, well, this is important and blah, 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 and kind of lose um, the nuance. So I don't need to convince you of that. You just need to know that the outcome um, you know, is the same, you know, f- from having this middle ground. And then the nuance piece is also kind of going back to what you were saying about, you know, just kind of getting accuracy. That's another thing that that's been lost. And I feel like really needs to come back. And obviously, little short bites on social media makes it harder, but that mm-hmm. that's on us is that, like, everything is nuanced, like you can, yeah. like, just because you say something doesn't mean you're taking away from this, or it doesn't mean you think this, or like, there's just, there's more complexity, in particular, when you're talking about things like locking down economies and governments, but like, there's so much nuance to it. And everyone wants to reduce it to, oh, well, you didn't vote for you don't like this, and therefore a bad person. Yeah. And you we, we can't, we can't operate, of course, the government is going to run away and consolidate power because we're all acting like three-year-olds. We're all fighting with each other. You know, right. it, it's all about placing labels on people. Oh, you're so-and-so. So you must think this, this, and this. Um, and by the way, if you want to really get into a complete lockdown, let's take away everybody's phone for three days. <laughs> right. Shut down the grid to conserve yeah, power. Forget, because you can't have people power plant. They need to be locked down, right? Yeah. Right. 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 Just take away your phones for a week. Everybody drop them in a basket. A week, a day, 24 hours. People would be crawling up the walls, screaming about the government. Right. Whatever, whatever you need, whatever you need. Well, yeah, and we, by we, the way, that's why it happened now and not at a different point in time. And we've had other very virulent things that affect different people. Um, and, you know, you've never had a full lockdown before. You never had, had that because they didn't have the ability, the people who were in power didn't have the opportunity to continue to do those jobs at those points in time. It was yeah. off the table. So uh, that, that the tech actually enabled the ability to kind of go for this, this power grab. Yeah. I, I think nine 11 was the first lockdown that I ever experienced in my lifetime. Uh, you know, that was kind of like when the world just stopped right. Right, for like a full week. Right. But again, it was like it was like a, it, and it obviously more in New York and then a little bit more in some of the big cities. But yeah. like it was very like localized to what was going yes. on. It's a situation. And then everyone said, 
screw it. Like we're Americans, we're getting back to normal. And right. that didn't happen on a, I mean, the, I have so many people that I interact with that are from other countries that are, you are here in the United States from Serbia and Azerbaijan and these places. And they came to America with this perception of what America is. And they're like, you guys are a bunch of sheep. I can't believe y'all just agreed to like, they're, they're literally there in shock that yeah. we agreed to do this. Yeah. But I mean, you think about it, you, you know, the, you have to have a, a, a kind of an independent leader to, to lead the sheep and, and, and that independent leader gets taken out. All right. We're, we're kind of in the home stretch here. And, and again, what I said, it's a phenomenal book. If so, for everybody listening, it's called the war on small business, how the government used the pandemic to crush the backbone of America. And this is, is a nonpartisan book in my opinion, right? It doesn't matter whether you're Democrat, Republican, independent, but if you are a business owner or you support small business, I encourage you to buy this book and to read it because it asks a lot of questions and it, and it focuses on a lot of important but complex issues that have affected us over the last, not only the last year and a half, but really the last 20, 30, 50 years, right? I mean, this has been, this has been a tsunami that's been coming for a long time now. And I feel like, Carol, when I was reading your book, that it made land, you know, it hit land in March of 2020. And that's yeah. when we started to see the kind of the devastation that was coming for years. Yeah, it was it was a, co a covert set of operations that ended up in one big operation. And, you know, I appreciate um you know, you, you talking about this and how important it is. And I, I guarantee you, everybody will learn and, and take away very tangible things from this. But the other thing that's really important um, from my perspective, somebody who's been advocating for small business for 12 years is by purchasing this book and getting your friends to purchase this book, it tells publishers and it tells the media that small business is important. And Brian, you know this as much as I did, but they have cut back their small business coverage. They don't want to publish books about small business. They, they think the public doesn't care. So unless people put their money where their mouth is and say, yes, we're going to buy, this is a topic that's important to us, then the, the headlines are going to continue to be dominated by Amazon, Facebook, Twitter, whatever. And, and we're going to have no advocacy for small business because they, they think that people just don't care about it. Right, right. Well, when you walk down Main Street and there's no businesses on Main Street because the, the support wasn't there at the local level, the state level, the federal government level, then you'll you know, it's it's you, you know, everything that we are talking about today will be affirmed. Um, all right, now I want you to do uh, the tough job. And that is I want you to take out your crystal ball <laughs> because I know a lot of I, I get this question asked of me all the time. Yeah. What does the next 12 to 24 months look like for small business owners in the United States. And I'll give you flexibility. You can look at any part of it. You can look at inflation, labor, <laughs> supply chain, um, government regulations, whatever you want. Sure. Okay. So I'll, I'll, I'll do a lot. I'll, I'll cover a lot of these topics. So, and again, this is just best guess based on where we are today. A lot of this will depend on fiscal policy that's being uh, put forth 
And if the, that materializes or not, because it's a complete game changer. Um, and it will also depend in some ways on, on if the, the Fed stops with their monetary policy, which uh, as of the date of recording, we just heard recently that, uh, that that's not going to happen until 2022, but you think things shift. So I'm gonna just kind of look at it today. So from a labor standpoint, um, I think that during the summer months, like if you've been out of the workforce, you know, because of extended unemployment benefits or child care issues or whatever it is, like you're not going back in like July. (laughs) You're like, it's the summer. There's no way I'm going back. So I don't think that there's any shift. I don't think we're going to see a meaningful shift. Um, You'll see some of it, but like not a meaningful shift potentially until uh, the fall. I don't know how many small business owners will be able to hang on until that point in time. Yeah. And at that point in time, they're still going to have to pay higher wages. Um, again, not, not there's anything wrong with higher wages, but those that have been artificially inflated because the small business is now competing with the government. So I think that the, this fallout from small business, we know as of June of last year, from the Hamilton project that 400,000 small businesses closed forever. Um, The Biden administration is using the number just more than 400,000, but again, that was a year ago. So I'm finding it hard to believe that that's the real number. I think when we're all said and done, it's probably, you know, between a million and a half and 2 million businesses that probably go away forever. Yeah, yeah, being conservative. And then what you don't understand if you're not a small business owner, you don't, or if you are of a, what I would call a small business at the higher end of the spectrum, because small businesses, like we talk about it in a group, but it's like, you know, so disparate in terms of who has employees, who uses contractors, all those right, kinds right. of things. Um, I think that, uh, you know, it, it's going to be a, a huge challenge for many of them who have a lot of debt that they took on before the pandemic, right? So these are things that they, they took on and now they've been trying to just survive and then they're dealing with all these other issues and increasing inflation costs and whatnot. And so they're going to have personal debt burden. So I'm very worried uh, about a spate of bankrupts, personal bankruptcies for personal guarantees um, that end up impacting a lot of small business owners. So I think there's a very long tail on the story that's not going to really, you're not going to really see the aftermath of this until like, you know, 2022 and 2023. So this, there's a sort of a long tail story yeah. here. Um I think the wage piece of inflation is is permanent. I don't think that's transitory. I don't see the supply chain fully opening up for like a good another, you know, maybe another nine months or so. Wow. Um, just okay. based on what I'm seeing um, in terms of shortages, the labor issue, containers, like the container issue, like, you, you know, people, like I have clients who can't get stuff out of China because when they ship to China, like there's nothing here to export back to be able to have the container round trip. So like the whole thing is just a complete mess because you can't turn off like a third of the economy and then turn it back on like you're power cycling a computer. It just doesn't work that way. And the fact, again, that the Fed came out yesterday and said that they hadn't considered that yet we're letting them, you know, pump $8 trillion into the economy, like is, it's, it's just super frustrating. So I think it, there's going to be a, a big issue. And I think that we're just going to have this ongoing issue of sort of David versus, versus Goliaths that, you know, the, these big companies and people who are participating in the stock market have done well and other people are struggling. 
And the, the part that scares me, Brian, is that it's going to get blamed on capitalism instead of getting blamed on government. And they're going to try and solve the problem with more government. And we're going to end up destroying economic freedom. And I think that's the, the crossroads of where we're at, where things could go really wrong. And there are a lot of uh, pieces of legislation out there, everything from the PRO Act, oh. which kills the gig economy. I know that you're big on that. Yeah. Um, minimum wage. Even just some of the, the legislation, online legislation, that's meant to rein in like the big tech companies, the implications that that always has for small companies. I talk about in the book what happened um, with the Dodd-Frank reg- legislation around the Great Recession and how that killed community banks and small business lending. The small business, the individual, the, the person who, who's, who's uh, you know, just trying to, to you know, be a retail investor in the stock market, whatever it is, those are the people that no matter what the intention is, always end up on the losing end. So like the good intentions don't lead to the good outcomes. So we're in a very tenable position, Um, not to mention that just between the Great Recession, financial crisis and this, um, that we have had unprecedented central bank intervention in the U.S. and around the world. And, you know, that's why cryptocurrency has become so popular. That's why DeFi has become popular. So there are a lot of things that are really tenuous. And there could be like 19 different outcomes that I could make an ar- argument for. Yeah, yeah. On, in, in part on other things happening. But I know if we don't, start spreading these messages and we don't start you say enough's enough that the small guy, the little guy, whether that be in business or otherwise is the one who's going to bear the brunt of all of this. I couldn't agree with you more. And by the way, I don't, I should just say, I don't hate big business. I sometimes defend Amazon and Facebook and whatnot oh, yeah. as long yeah, yeah. as the playing field is level. When they, when they start, the government starts making the playing field non-level is where I get crazy. Well, it's interesting, you know, just to kind of and, and and I thought about this during our, our podcast, but, you know, big businesses, best customers are small business owners. You know, that's where their profits come from. You know, you look at the long tail of Google. I think like 80 percent of Google's revenue comes from small business owners and Amazon. I, I mean, there and there's a lot that they do for small business, but that's that free economy way of thinking, right? To, to, to an earlier point is that when the market corrects itself, big businesses realize that you don't want to kill the golden goose of small business. You know, we get, we get our volume from big other big businesses, but we get our profits from small business. You know, that same box that uh, a big business, you know, it costs them $8 to ship. It's going to cost the small business owner $18, and it's the same box. It's kind of like healthcare. If you're with a big company, you get better healthcare coverage. If you're a small business owner, you're going to get, you know, you're, you're paying three, four, five times the cost because you are a small business owner. It's the price you pay. But again, that goes back to government interference, that if we were all in the free market and there weren't these like you could get your health care anyway, you had to get your health care from a big business, then we would all be on even footing. But, yeah, it comes back. It comes back to is that this is not an anti big business. This is I'm all for capitalism. If you get there and you make trillions of dollars, like good, good for you. I just want the government to not be tilting the, the playing field right. in your direction or for you to be lobbying for anti-competitive legislation and so on and so forth. Right, right. And don't tie our hands behind our backs exactly. in the end. So let, every, let everyone compete fairly. It's it's good yeah. for everyone. And by the way, 
and and, and it's it's the uh, the abundance mentality. There is more than enough for everyone. The, the, the pie keeps right. growing if right. you let it. It's when we shut it down that it's not, and then it's going to be an exercise in divvying something up instead of creating wealth, and that doesn't benefit right. anybody. Don't be pigs at a trough, exactly. right? There's enough for everybody if we play the right. game you know, as it, as it's set forth, as exactly under the rules of free market capitalism. Exactly. So that's where I agree with you again. uh, This is the small business edge podcast that you've been listening to. I'm Brian Moran, your host. Our guest today has been Carol Roth, who I love for her um, aggressive pursuit of anything that stays in and stands in the way of small businesses which I love. And she, her new book, The War on Small Business, uh, comes out June 29th. So please make sure that you buy the book and you read the book. And as she said very early in the podcast, go to bookshop.org to order it. And not only will you be getting a great book to read, but you'll be supporting a local independent bookstore. Carol, thank you. Thank you for everything. Thank you for being on our podcast today and for sharing all of your insights and and challenging us to open our eyes to what's happening around us and to be asking questions and don't simply accept the status quo from whatever we are being given. You know, we're being spoon fed. Um, And I will finish the book and I will call you with a lot more questions. But again, thank you. Thank you for everything. And I hope you sell a million copies of it. And that, that'll mean that we'll have a million more enlightened small business owners. Thank you. Well, the book is uh, not only is it dedicated to my father, but it's dedicated to all the small business owners who, despite the odds, continue to fight and persevere. So it's your book. Um, I hope, hope I did you proud. You did. Thank you. And to our listeners, thank you very much for listening to us on a weekly basis. Thank you for your feedback, your questions, your comments, and your suggestions. Um, I hope we uh, are helping you run better, more effective, more efficient businesses and keep those emails coming. And we'll see you next week on another edition of the Small Business Edge podcast. Take care, everybody. You've been listening to the Small Business Edge podcast with Brian Moran, sponsored by Pitney Bowes. Please visit our website, smallbusinessedge.com, for a listing of future podcasts.